you are a good God. Thank you that we've seen that uh, in the book of Mark so far, uh, that we've enjoyed yeah, w- watching how Jesus shows us what your heart is like, God, um, as he healed the leper, as he healed the paralyzed man, as he shows his goodness, even in little things like this. But we thank you, yeah, like we saw last week, that we see your goodness in how you deal with our sin. Um, Lord, we pray this morning um, that you would challenge us and help us to uh, figure out what this passage is saying. But we pray not just that, we pray that uh, we'd think about this in our lives as well and that as we leave today that we would be uh, people who have been shaped and challenged by uh, your spirit through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think about rules? Right? Like, How do you feel about rules? I feel like in our culture in Australia, uh, the general culture is that when it comes to rules, we're kind of generally anti them. Right? I don't know if you've got tattooed somewhere on you or some sort of thing in your house, you know, rage against the machine or stick it to the man or dance to the beat of my own heart. I don't know if you get into that, but I feel like generally in Australia, we're kind of anti-rules. I realized this about myself growing up, actually, that this was um, shaped into who I was. So when I was seven years old, for a brief time in my life, I wanted to be a policeman. But the reason I wanted to be a cop wasn't simply so I could help people, so that I could make people feel comfortable and people's lives better. The reason I wanted to be a police Man was so that I could break the rules. No joke. I wanted to be a cop so that I could speed, right? That was it for me. That's why I wanted to be a a cop. It didn't take long for me to realize um, that you can't, as a policeman, just get away with things like that. But see, even ingrained in me as a seven-year-old, like no one had taught me that. It's just the culture had shaped me. I'm anti-rules, right? Whether it's because originally it was some convicts that broke the rules that came to this country, or over time culture just got that way, I feel like a little bit in us has this idea of anti-rules. Now, maybe you wouldn't publicly admit that, right? Maybe you're actually sitting there going, hang on, like rules are generally pretty good, but we all have that street in our lives with the stop sign that no one wants to stop at. Right? There's always a moment, there's always somewhere within us. In fact, last night we were driving home late at night, and I said to Elizabeth, I really want to speed right now, I just want to get home. Right? It's ingrained with us that bad rules or, or rules like that, we just want to break them. Now, now it's interesting, as we come together uh, as a church this morning, uh, as we join together as, as God's people here, it's interesting, like we'd admit that rules and, and even kind of restrictions have this kind of baggage to it. Like these words, they're not words like you really want to talk about, but as we come together as a church this morning, we're kind of asking this question, what do we do with rules and restrictions and God? What do we do in this space? Like does God give us rules that we should obey and things that we should do? Is there restrictions on our lives? Maybe even just asking those questions, there's something within you going, hang on, right? Let's just take a step back here. Um, So you can see, right, there's a question that needs to be asked here. There's some baggage. What do we do with rules and with God? Well, we're going to see in our passage as we walk through what Jesus does here, Jesus kind of addresses this. And we see this in our passage. So if you have your Bibles there, we see this. It picks up for us uh, in verse 18. Uh, Just quickly, remembering verse 17, Jesus has just said, I haven't come for the healthy but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. And then we pick it up in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. 
Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine onto old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. What do we do with rules and God? kind of what the people are actually asking Jesus, right? They come to Jesus and they go, hey, look, that John's followers are fasting and the followers of the Pharisees are fasting. How come your guys aren't? How come your guys aren't following the kind of rules? Now, now fasting, I mean, we've got to understand fasting to get our heads around this. Fasting back in the day had a little bit more going on for it than it does today. So you might not even have heard of much fasting around at the moment. We know that Muslims fast during Ramadan for a month uh, we know that you have to fast before a blood test. Outside of that, depending on what circles you're in, we don't hear about this that much. But back in the day, uh, for the Jews, everyone fasted. In fact, they were commanded to fast. One day a year, they were told, you have to fast. It was the Day of Atonement. And the whole day was based 24 hours. It was this repentance, this turning to God. Right? They'd spend a whole day turning to God and then celebrating, remembering how God forgives them. Now, now, just taking a step back for a second, that doesn't sound like that bad a rule, does it? Right? 24 hours to reflect, to turn to God. But, but the problem is, like many of the things in the day, the people had turned this rule into not something that was good or, or something that would help you flourish, but actually kind of this restricting thing. Fasting had become this thing where you needed to do it, not because it was your response to God, but because if you fasted and you fasted well, not only would people think you're good, God would think you're good. Right? That's what fasting had turned into. In fact, the Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday, to which some of us are glad that we're not Pharisees. Because <laughs> every single week, they'd spend their Mondays and their Thursdays fasting. This is what fasting had become. Right? No longer this response to God, but this thing in order that people would see me as good, they'd dress up, they'd make themselves look even worse, and ultimately God would see us as good. Right? So, so when Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, in a day where if you wanted your religious movements to actually take off, you'd probably fast, these guys come up to Jesus and going, how come your guys aren't fasting? Why aren't you fasting? To which Jesus responds to them. He replies to them, and he doesn't reply by breaking down rules, but he does by showing us what's behind these kind of things. And, and what he says first and foremost is they're not fasting because actually we're, we're celebrating at the moment. And to do that, he uses the picture of a bridegroom and a, and, a, and a wedding. Now, we know even today that weddings are pretty cool celebrations. Maybe you've been to a wedding lately. Maybe the last wedding was yours. Maybe you're looking forward to a wedding soon. I won't mention names in that moment, but maybe you're looking forward to something in a moment. But we know weddings are celebrations, right? You go to the ceremony, you're enjoying the ceremony, but the, the party really starts at the reception, right? You, you toss up whether, am I going to eat lunch or not? You go without it, so you're hungry. You go early, you fill up on canapes. 
you eat dinner, you eat more food, the dessert comes out, it's free, you drink, you dance, you party, you celebrate, you go home. It's all this great celebration, right? The thing is that back in the day, right, weddings were uh, like our celebrations but on steroids because they would have weddings over seven days. Can you imagine that? Like, I know that there are some countries today that still do that, but how great does a seven-day celebration sound? The wedding was all about the celebration. That, that's what it was, celebrating that something new is happening here. And Jesus says, my guys aren't fasting because actually we're celebrating. Right? He says, the, the bridegroom's here. One day they'll be taken, I'll be taken away. But he's saying, while I'm here, we're celebrating. And the thing that they're celebrating is ultimately that Jesus is here. Right? And we've seen this in Mark already, haven't we? I mean, the Messiah is here. The King is here. The one we've been longing for is here. Right? Jews would, in their houses, would long for the day that the Messiah would come, and he's here. So naturally, they're celebrating. He says, that's why we're not fasting, we're, we're celebrating. But one day, they will fast. And we have to catch that as well, because he says, they're not fasting now because I'm here. One day, I'll be taken away, and that's the day when they will fast. And I think there's a challenge here for us as well as we think about this. This is not something that's meant to restrict us or cripple us. It's actually meant to be a help for us. That's why Jesus says this, because he's thinking of the day that actually the people that Mark is writing to. Mark's writing to guys in Rome under Nero. Mark's writing to guys who would be burnt, a lot, burnt for their faith, right? The Christians who, who would die for their faith. And so as they're reading this, you can kind of picture them going, oh, okay, so they're not fasting at the moment because they're celebrating, but there is a time that it becomes a good thing to fast, right? a time when people do need to seek God, to, to stop eating food and to chase after God, and, and there'll be a time where that actually happens. And so maybe for these guys in Rome, maybe that's a time for them to do it. Now, there is a challenge here for us as well here, right? Like, I grew up being told we don't have to fast. Now, that's true. We don't have to fast. Jesus never said we have to fast, but, but he's saying there's actually something good about this. There is a time in your life when seeking God, in a moment, abstaining from food to seek God will be a good thing. I don't know. I think there's a, a, a challenge there for us as well. Just think through that. I mean, maybe that's something we need to wrestle with as well. He says, uh, at the moment that we're not fasting because we're celebrating, the time will come when we do, but at the moment we're celebrating, right? We're, we're celebrating, he says. And what are they celebrating? Well, they're celebrating that something new is here. Something new is here. And, and to show that, he, in verse 21 and 22, we see he uses two illustrations to prove this point. He could call them parables if you want to, but he basically says this. You don't put an uh, uh, unshrunk bit of cloth on a garment. If you do, and it goes through the wash, or however, over time, the garment's going to split. You don't put new wine into old wineskins because apparently wine expands and over time that's going to burst the skins and both are going to be ruined. Basically what Jesus is saying this, he's saying there's something new here that he's bringing in. Right? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the people of the day thought to get to God, it's what I do. Right? God is going to see me as good because of my actions. But Jesus is saying actually there's something new here. His, his modern day version, I think, of this of what his illustrations are of this. He's basically saying this. Um, Jesus isn't, because really, unshrunk cloth and wineskins and stuff like that. I mean, we haven't had wineskins, unless you have a cask in your fridge, but that's a little bit different to what they're talking about. Haven't had that for a little while. So today's version is this, right? We all know with our phones, uh, if you have a phone, a, a smartphone, each year we get updates on our phone. 
this big software update where your phone kind of, uh, you get, it looks new, it looks nice, you get new apps, they fix some old problems, they make some new ones, you get this update once a year on your phone. If you didn't know that on your phone, you probably have like seven updates waiting for you. In your setting, no, I'm not going to explain how to do it. Anyway, there's an update on your phone, right? Uh, last year, though, uh, Google Pixel released, or Google released this phone called the Google Pixel. Uh, it's meant to be one of the best phones on the market. Uh, pretty much everyone is saying that it's a really great phone. Even if you are an Apple diehard fan, which congratulations if you are because it's a dying breed, but if you are still that, even you could admit that the Google Pixel looks pretty good. Here's the thing though, to, to get the Pixel, you can't just put a Pixel update on your phone. Right? That's not how it works. You can't just update what you already have, your existing device, and it's going to just turn into this phone, this pixel. No, if you want that, you've got to get a whole new thing altogether. That's what Jesus is saying here. To, to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees who thought that, that to get to God, I've got to earn my way to God. It's, it's what I do. God's going to see me as good based on how much I'm fasting and what I'm doing. Jesus is saying what I'm actually bringing in is something new. Something completely different, right? Something different to what you think. Now, the crazy thing about it is that actually if you read the Old Testament properly, we see that the Old Testament's all about grace anyway. But, but these guys had missed the point. They had turned into traditions without meaning. And so Jesus is saying, actually, what I'm doing is bringing in something new. And, and we have to see this as well here. Jesus is bringing in something new here that our way to God isn't from what we do. It's from what Jesus has done. This is a new thing worth celebrating, right? It's not good advice on if you want to get to God, do more stuff. It's good news that everything we need to get to God has been done in Christ at the cross, right? This is the new thing Jesus is bringing in. This is the thing they're celebrating, the thing we have to catch, that, that faith now is based on Jesus alone. It's not, not by works that we're saved. It's by grace in Christ that we're saved. This is the new thing. Now, now, if this morning, right, you've come to church thinking that God sees you as good because of what you've done this week, right, like, like he has a checklist and church was the final thing that you've got to tick off, and God's looking at you going, man, you have nailed it this week. Unfortunately, that's just not how it works, right? God looks at us through the lens of Jesus and sees us as perfect and clean because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we do. This is the new thing that Jesus is bringing, the good news that we have to grasp here. Right? This is the new thing. It's different to what these guys had. It's good. It's good news. Now, now the question then still remains. So if we're saved not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done, what do we do with rules? Right? So what then do we do with what Jesus calls us to do? Because even those words, rules or restrictions, it kind of, I don't know, makes my makes me feel uneasy a little bit. What do we do with this? Well, well, Jesus wants us to see what we do with rules. We're saved by what he's done. This is the new thing. And now he's about to show us what we do with rules, what we do with the stuff that God calls us to. And we pick it up in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, as his and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? 
In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for, for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What do we do with rules and God if we're saved by what he's done, not by what we do? Well, Jesus wants to address that. Now, now the Sabbath back in the day, again, it was one of the things that God called his people to do. Uh, It was a day off pretty much from work, uh, Friday evening basically to Saturday evening where you would switch off, you would uh, recover, be refreshed, and, and you'd spend good time remembering what God has done. Now again, as we think about it, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing, does it? The Sabbath, the idea of a, a day of rest, that sounds like a good thing. But over time, again, what had happened is it turned into a tradition without meaning. People started doing this and then putting greater boundaries on this. And so the Sabbath turned into this thing where if you, if you didn't do it, then um, you'd be looked down upon. But on top of that, there was this, just, it just turned into some crazy restrictions. One of them that, that wasn't, it's not in the Bible, but the traditions turned into, one of them was that on the Sabbath, so you can't work, right? Uh, which means you can't pick grain and stuff like that. But they actually added to that, and one of their rules now was uh, that you can't even pick up your kid. That counts as work, picking up your child on the Sabbath. I don't know how that works out. Maybe you just create ramps on Friday afternoon, and your kids just... Who knows how that, that plays out? But that was one of their things, right? This restriction. You can see how that's crippling. And so Jesus then, when he's walking around and picking grain, well, of course they're not going to be happy with it. So, so they say to Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus basically replies with not just what do we do with the Sabbath, but what do we do with rules in general? And what he says is, haven't you heard about David? Uh, the story of David, he did some things people didn't normally do, right? Uh, they ate some consecrated bread that you kind of weren't meant to normally eat, but that was fine. Why was that fine? Well, well, he explains it in verse 27 and 28. He says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus is showing us here what we do with the stuff that God calls us to. And he says two things. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and then Jesus is Lord of it. So so first things first, the Sabbath was made for man. God created a day of rest for humanity as a gift to us. God created the idea of a day off. How good is that? God knew that we're weak, that we're broken, that we need time to stop, but not just stop from work, but actually stop and remember what God has done. He created it as a help for us, for our good. Right Now, uh, I love when you come across stuff that's not from the Bible and Christian stuff that actually aligns with what God says. So I've been reading this uh, book called Rest by, it's not a Christian book, it's a, actually by a guy... Uh, a businessman in the Silicon Valley, basically, writing this book on rest. And, he, and this guy's big thing is that culturally, we see rest as the enemy of work, right? Especially, you can imagine the Silicon Valley where, you know, they're working 90 hours a week. But, but he says, actually, rest isn't the enemy of work. And if we can start to grab a hold of that, not only is our work going to be better, but holistically, we're going to flourish, right? That's his whole premise of the book is that rest is not the enemy to work. Rest is actually the friend to it. It's a help to it. It helps us in our work, but it also helps us in our whole lives. 
Now, now that's basically what Jesus is saying. He said, the Sabbath is made for man. It's God's gift to us for our good. Right? The, the fact that we stop, that we rest, that we recover, that we remember what God has done for us, it's designed for our good. Not the other way around. The Sabbath was a gift to us. We weren't a gift to the Sabbath, which really is a weird thing to think through if you get into the details of that. Like, God is not a needy God that has this list of stuff that he needs to get done and, and needs us to do it. That's not the picture of God. He doesn't need us, but he's designed the Sabbath for us as a gift to us. Right? How great is it that God has done this? And we practically know this. Like when we're told we have a day off, we love it. And so here God is basically telling us, have a day off. In fact, I'm, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I'm pretty sure of this the way that we ended up having two days off. I could be wrong on this, so, you know, hold it with an open hand, but I'm pretty sure in America what happened was the Jews wanted the Saturday off and the Christians wanted the Sunday off, and then the, the, you know, the burrito girl that was there said, why don't we have both? And they said, sounds like a plan, and that's what happened, right? I mean, look into history. It'll tell you that anywhere. That's where the girl came from, actually, and then the ad took it from but but that's what happened right so well i don't know if that's what happened but god is actually designed us a gift for us in a day off god has done that god god has given us this thing that's meant to help us not cripple us the sabbath is not meant to poison us it's actually a gift to us to help us and I think we see that practically too. Like if you work you know, a certain amount of days without a day off, eventually that burns people out. These, we know just practically it's a good thing. So that's the first thing God wants to show us, is that it's actually given to us for our good. But the second thing is also important here. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And he is making a bold statement here. He's claiming what we've seen already in Mark. Jesus is God among us. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one that designed this thing, that made up the idea of a day off for us. He planned this out, God did this, and Jesus is actually claiming to be God. Right? So, so the two things we see on the Sabbath is that it's for our good, and God has called us to do it. Now again, like fasting before, I think there is actually a brief challenge here for us to wrestle with. God is actually still calling us to have a day off. Not as something that cripples us, Right? And you can almost hear him saying, you know, pick up your kids right? on the Sabbath. Just get them up. Like, don't be weird about it. He hasn't designed this for us to cripple us, but to help us. And some of us do need to reclaim some of that in our lives, where our day off has just turned into just a kind of a day where we'll sleep in, but still do some work along the way. And, you know, we'll, we'll you know, maybe not spend as much time with our family, but we'll spend a bit with them, where we won't think too much about what God has done. We need to reclaim some of that. Maybe there is a, a chance and a challenge there to actually put our phones away or our computers away for our day and reclaim this Sabbath because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the God and he hasn't designed it to restrict us or cripple us, but for our good. And that's what the final passage too, really, he really wants to ram that home for us in this final passage. We, we see that from chapter 3 uh, onwards to verse 6. Jesus again on the Sabbath goes to a synagogue, and uh, we'll pick it up from verse 1. A man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal uh, him on the Sabbath. 
Jesus uh, said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now, now, just catch this for a second. If you've ever had some kind of physical, I don't know, ailment, like a cut or a growth or something like that, or something you know, we're a little bit embarrassed about, the idea of even looking people in the face sometimes is a pretty big one. Jesus is telling this guy to stand up in front of everyone with his shriveled hand. It's a big, it's a big claim here, a big thing that this guy does. Then Jesus turns around, you can kind of see him, addressing everyone in verse 4. And he asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. We see there the guys in verse 2 that wanted to accuse Jesus, have found something to accuse him of. And in Mark, for the first time really, we get a glimpse of kind of the cross-shaped clouds brewing on the horizon. It's kind of what we see here with this final verse. But, but here, before we get to the cross, um, Jesus wants us to show us something. He wants to show us something. And what he wants to show us is that God's rules, God's Sabbath, is actually designed for our good and he's Lord of it. So he heals the man with the shriveled hand. He shows that he's God, right? He always backs up his big statements with action. He shows that he's God. He can heal the man's shriveled hand. And then he shows that the whole thing is actually designed for our good. And when the Sabbath gets in the way of our good, then it's defeating the purpose. So he heals this man because that's for his good. And God is showing us what we saw in verse 27 and 28, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and that Jesus is Lord even over the Sabbath. And here we get a glimpse into God's heart once again, which we have the whole series of Mark, really. We get a glimpse into God's heart, not just of what he thinks or what his heart is about the Sabbath, but really about all rules. We, we see this, in fact, of everything that God says. These two principles are true for them, Right, that they are designed for our good and that they are designed by God who calls us to do them. Right? It's true for things like the Sabbath. It's true for fasting. But it's true for everything. It's true for like love God first. True for like love your neighbor as yourself. Things like don't steal, don't murder. Uh, things like if you've been in the news lately on abuse in the home. Things like husbands love your wife as the church as Christ loved the church, sorry, right? Don't abuse your wife. Things like even sexuality. God hasn't designed these things to cripple us or to poison us. God has designed them for our good so that we can flourish, and he is calling us to them because he's God. Now, again, we don't earn acceptance from God. No, that's a burden that becomes too big to handle. But God still does call us to stuff. But he doesn't call us from a heart that actually wants us to be crippled or brought down. He calls us to stuff so that we can flourish. It's for our good. The Sabbath was made for man and he is Lord of the Sabbath. Right? And so what we're seeing in this passage is this glimpse into God's heart and really starting to understand ourselves that if we want to flourish, you could even say if we want to be truly free, it's not a lack of rules. It's not a lack of restrictions, but actually the presence of the right ones. To flourish as people, it's not a lack of restrictions or a lack of rules. 
even though our culture might breed that into us, it's actually the presence of the right ones. Now, if we actually, you know, now I know that, um, I know that within us, our culture wants to fight against the idea of rules and restrictions. I, I get that, right? That, that's within me as well. Like you, you think, okay, God gives me rules. That, that doesn't sit well with me, but flourishing and, and, and our good happens not in a lack of restriction, but the presence of right ones. And if we actually stop to think about this, I think we know it's true as we look around our world. If we, if we think about this for a moment, we know that this is true. So let's think about our country for a second. We call Australia the free country. Why is it free? It's, it's not because we have no law, but actually we'd say it's because we have a pretty good one, right? Like, like we would say our country helps us flourish, not because of lack of restrictions, but a presence of the right ones. And then you compare that to something like North Korea. You go, okay, that's what bad restrictions look like. That is a crippling regime over there where, where they are kind of poisoned by the restrictions around them. We also see this uh, in things like music. So uh, recently, pretty much for the first time in my life, I've stumbled across a guitarist that I actually like in terms of like just basically a guitarist. Um, his name's Aiden Kai. He's a Japanese guitarist, and he's amazing. Now, I know that we all have our kind of musicians that we like, potentially. I don't, actually, I don't know if that's true. But we at least know musicians, so guitarists that are amazing or pianists or whatever, right? Just amazing musicians. Now, now we know of that, that to be great at an instrument, it's not like to, be, to say, you know, someone is flourishing or even free, we would say it's not actually, uh, they're not actually great because of their lack of restrictions, but the presence of right ones, right? So the first thing when you get an instrument is that you learn what notes you have to play. You could even say that you are restricted or the rules are you need to you know, put your fingers a certain way on the guitar and play a note and that's a note, right? You are restricted by the notes of the guitar. Then on top of that, you're restricted by practice. If you want to be really good, then you have to be practiced and you have to be disciplined in that. Then there's other things like the, the law of kind of music and rhythm and beat and stuff like that. You can't be good at, at any instrument by being completely free, outside, having no restrictions. I can't go and pick up Jeff's guitar and be good, right? You wouldn't see me playing and go, man, that guy is free. You would say, man, that guy is messed up. The, to flourish when you pick up a guitar, it's, it's not the lack of restrictions, but the presence of the right ones. Now, now, when we look at what God calls us to do, when we see things like fasting, things like the Sabbath, and we see them as things that, that earn our way to God. It's the wrong restrictions. It's poisonous. It's crippling. When we have tradition without meaning, that's crippling. That's poisonous. When we just do things because the people before us told us to. When we are acting simply because we think God is going to look on us in some better form than we already are because of what we do. That is poisonous. That is crippling. But when we see that what God calls us to isn't to cripple us, but to poison us. When we see what he calls us to isn't so that we can earn our way to God, but simply in a response to all that he's done in, in, at the cross. When we see what, the, what God has called us to, is, it's been called for our good so that we can flourish well, then we start to see rules and restrictions in a different light. We start to see that what God calls us to is actually good. He's not doing this to, to cut out our legs from underneath us. 
He's calling us to this because it's going to be better for us if we do. Not just here, not just here and now in our lives, but holistically. In our homes, in our families, spiritually, and, and I think pretty bigger than that, eternally. God's not calling us to do things to restrict us or poison us. He's calling us to things so that we can flourish. And I think there is actually a challenge there. Um, the, the challenge comes in that we want to talk lots about grace, and I think that's a really good thing. We, we always want to celebrate that Jesus has saved us, not based on what we do. But the danger is then that we can simply just throw out what God has called us to do. Well, well, I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by what Jesus has done, so I don't need to do anything. And there's a challenge here, right? Jesus is still Lord of the Sabbath. He's still calling us to stuff, and he's not calling us to stuff for any other reason than it's actually for our good so that we can flourish. I hope that this week we can think through this in our growth groups, that we can wrestle with this, what this means for things like fasting and the Sabbath. If you're not in a growth group, we'd love to hook you into one, but please, let's, let's keep having this conversation. What does this mean for us in our lives? Let's pray. Um, God, thank you that you are a God uh, who has saved us, um, not by what we have done, not by what we have to do, but by what Jesus has done. We celebrate that, Lord. We thank you, too, that here this morning we had a good glimpse into your heart in terms of what you call us to do, that you're not calling us to do things to restrict us or poison us, but you're calling us to do things for our good so that we can flourish. Help us wrestle with this, Lord, because you are the Lord. You're the Lord of the Sabbath. You're the King of the universe. And ultimately, as we put our trust in you, that you're the King of our lives as well. So we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.